The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Afterburn Podcast is brought to you by bogeydope.com. Flying for the Air National Guard or Air Force Reserves means enjoying the same perks as active duty pilots, but with far more freedom to choose what you fly, where you live, and how often you work. Bogeydope.com launches your aviation career with the Guard and Reserves through a suite of e-courses, coaching sessions, and free resources. Find out what units are hiring, how to rush units, application and interview prep, and much more. They've just announced Bogey Dope Bootcamp, a three-month live course dedicated to getting you into the cockpit of your dreams. Visit bogeydope.com, that's B-O-G-I-D-O-P-E.com, or click the link down in the show notes, and you can use the code AFTERBURN for 5% off. Wingman Watch was founded by a group of pilots with one goal in mind, build a high-quality timepiece inspired by vintage military aviation, and at an affordable price. Let Wingman Watch build your watch today. Whether it be for your fighter squadron, your bomber squadron, your cargo unit, your army unit, your fire department, whatever it might be, let Wingman Watch take your inspiration and create something that will last forever. You can visit wingmanwatch.com and use the code RAIN10 to get something that is currently built or mention my name and start your custom timepiece today. I'd also like to thank AOPA for allowing us to film this episode with Mace at their booth at Oshkosh. You'll notice this might sound a little bit different because we're sitting out there live with planes flying around, but it was fun to chat. And again, big thanks to AOPA. You can go over to AOPA.org and check them out. I'm a member and I have their membership plus pilot protection services because again, you'll never know when you might need someone to help you out with your medical or just dig into some training and additional resources. You can visit AOPA.org. Altitude. Altitude. Tower to my stitches, release you, runway 16 fighter pilot who now has ventured out doing some pretty cool stuff. I had fun chatting with Mace, and I think you'll enjoy hearing her story as well. Again, thanks to all my Patreon supporters, and thank you to all those who swing over and take the time at iTunes and Spotify to drop a rating review, helping the podcast out. Feel free to check out Afterburn Podcast on YouTube if you want to watch this episode, as well as any other ones. With that being said, let's jump into the podcast with Mace. Awesome. We're here at Oshkosh 22. I'm excited to be here with Mace. We're going to chat a little bit about her career, maybe some Air Force stuff, maybe not, maybe some things that are going on in life. But Mace, thanks for joining the podcast. I'm happy to have you here. It's awesome to be able to actually connect finally in person. For real. We've been Instagram friends yeah. for a long time, but meet in person at Oshkosh. Living in the mom's basement. You know, yeah, just exactly. Back and Trolling forward. each yeah. other. <laughs> so what, what have you thought about Oshkosh so far? So... It's, I mean, I've been to a lot of air shows, right? Yep, yep. And I grew up two hours from here. So you'd think this would not be my first time at Oshkosh, but it is, in fact. Really? Um, it's a little overwhelming. When I first yeah. walked in the gate, I had no idea where I was going, and I was very surprised by how much stuff is here. Now that I have my bearings a little bit, it's pretty awesome. I'm curious to see the numbers. I know, like, last year, I think they had, like, 640,000 people, but you can't, like, in a week, you still can't go through everything that's here. I mean, it's everything and anything. Like, it's crazy. I've barely seen... I've probably seen five percent of what's here. That's wild. So you grew up two hours from here. Did you like? Did you want to get into aviation as a young girl, or like was yeah? So I grew up in a small town, four thousand people, Medford, okay. Wisconsin. Not a military family, not an aviation family. So I just really had no exposure to it. Yeah. Um, in high school, there was one kid in my school, a year younger than me, who started taking lessons in a Cessna. Yeah. 
And I remember asking him about it all the time and asking my parents for flying lessons. And they were like, yeah, we can't afford those. And it just kind of, that was then the conversation. Um, and then I stopped thinking about it for a while until it was time to figure out how to pay for college. Right. And my dad suggested ROTC and I was like, no, I want to be a normal college kid. I want to yeah. live in the dorms and go to parties because you don't really know what to expect. That's what you think college yeah, is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but then we looked into it and I was like, okay, I don't want to stay in my small town in Wisconsin and this will give me a lot of opportunities to travel. So I decided to apply for a scholarship and got one. Went off to the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. But as a criminal justice major, planning on doing OSI. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny you even like knew all about that. So. I was probably very similar, but I grew up in a community that was surrounded by like, Delta pilots okay. who were all ex-Air Force or Navy. My parents weren't, like kind of similar story there, but my dad kind of pushed me that direction. But then I went to Georgia Tech, I did international affairs, so I was like the standalone, like if I got hit in the eye with a rock, I had no plan B. So I'm like, I'm glad it worked out. But how did you even like figure out, like, I didn't know what OSI was probably until I was in the Air Force. Like that's something very specific coming from someone who's not surrounded by people like that. How did you even like figure that out? And... So I wanted to be an FBI agent. Okay. All that right. was the end game. Yeah. I think I really liked the X-Files, which is the most accurate FBI show on TV. I don't think it's, I mean, I think that's what they do every single day. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's busy, it's busy. Right, exciting. Uh, so I wanted to be an FBI agent and a criminal justice major made sense for that. And so I think when I went and applied for my ROTC scholarship, I kind of asked about the best job options that would set me up for that because I was going to get college paid for, going to active duty for four years yep. to pay that time back as an OSI agent and also check the box of military time to go to a federal agency because they like that on an right. application. And then I was going to leave and go to the FBI. Clearly that happened. Yeah, you took a slight <laughs> detour. I don't know where that fork in the road occurred, but obviously it was probably somewhere a few years back. What was that fork in the road? Like, how did you, like, all right, hey, now I want to be a pilot? Yeah, so it, it was a very distinct moment. There were, throughout ROTC, people would always ask, like, who here wants to be a pilot? And people would raise their hands. It, you, like, every instructor would ask that, and I didn't raise my hand. Um, but I was a little bit intrigued by it. Yeah. Uh, but I just didn't know that much about it. And then we went to Tyndall on a base visit, I think about halfway through college. And I saw my first fighter aircraft take off because I just had no exposure to it before that. Sadly, it was not F-16s. It was two F-15s. Yeah, we, you know, it, yeah. Is, it is what it is. Full right? AB. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it was dusk. They were taking off for a night sortie. And it was just like jaw drop, goosebumps. Holy crap. Forget the FBI. Yeah. I'm like already in a position. I'm already an ROTC cadet on scholarship. So I, all I have to do is start raising my hand. And so that was the pivotal moment. That's really cool. And still, there's a lot that goes on between saying, hey, I want to do that, and actually getting selected, and going to pilot yeah. training, and then turns doing, out. yeah, it turns out there's a few steps in there. How was, like, overall, like, your experience, like, going through pilot training, and, yeah, any, like, big hurdles or, like, takeaways from that experience? So I went, I got a pilot slot. That part wasn't too bad, because I had a decent GPA, yeah. decent at physical fitness, and then I got to IFS, uh, initial flight screening out of Pueblo in the DA-20. Super nice place. Super nice place. <laughs> uh, it's a, like prison, but... Um, I think it's actually run by a prison company. It like, could be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. it has those vibes. Uh, I went into that, you know, you get all the way through solo, and I had zero flight time, no GA background, and a lot of my peers had their private pilot's license, or they just had that exposure, or they had mechanical backgrounds. They grew up working on cars, or they were engineering majors. Right criminal justice, not super helpful. <laughs> so that program was a little bit of a shock because okay. I, the first few weeks, I just didn't understand any of the things that were being thrown at me. I didn't understand aerodynamics and just like things like the oil system and hydraulics, all of that was new. So there was like one moment, I remember it was like midnight, I had to be up at 5 a.m. the next morning. I'm in my little prison cell right just cramming through all this information that I don't even understand and I had this realization that I might not be good enough to like do the program which had never happened in my life before yeah. um, but it was very short-lived because that program is only about a month long so I ended up getting there and when I when I left I remember the day I checked out and I went to see my flight commander to get signed off to leave and he's like you did such a good job and I was like what what the entire time I thought I was about yeah. to wash out of this program um, so that one was probably the most aggressive steep learning curve just from where I was starting. Yeah. Then pilot training itself, I 
really had a great time, honestly. Yeah. It was super fun, exciting. My class was amazing. Stressful, of course. Right. But you're in that stressful situation with like 20 of your best friends and you're all going through those same hurdles together. So I enjoyed it, was able to track T38s and then there definitely was some stress leading up to uh, drop night. Yeah, no joke. As, right? yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about your class, but my class got two fighter aircraft for 25 people, which is pretty standard at the time, I think. Yeah, so like when I went through, we first we had two of us go from T6s. We washed back to build a big enough T38 class. And then we had, you know, the standard get the dream sheet a couple weeks before assignment night. And I want to say it was like three or four days before Simon I, the squadron commander walked in and said, hey guys, um, here's a new dream sheet. It has every aircraft in the Air Force because you guys are going to get heavies in your drop, which is like the first time that it ever happened at Columbus. I think it had happened at like Vance first. And he's like, I don't know what it's going to look like. He's like, just fill out like your top 30 choices and we'll figure it out. And so like that was like soul crushing. Because like, again, you're expecting everyone to go to a fighter or bomber or FAPE such as myself. Um, and so you just didn't know how to handle it. I want to jump back real quick to IFS yeah. because you know, you're talking about the struggles going through that, like basically like the self-doubt, which I, I think everyone does because you're, you're getting crushed and in, in the flying world, you don't know it at that time. Like if you do a good job, you just, no one's going to tell you. It's like, if they don't say anything about it, like you can count that as a win, like yeah. you did it right, but you don't know that so young. I would say I, our IFS class, I don't know if it's still this way, but I imagine it's got to be close. I think we started with 70, and the attrition rate was somewhere around like 30%, which is like the highest attrition rate of any of the, the Air Force programs. So we yeah. saw people leaving, For sure. going through, which was really stressful. But the way I did it, I was just like, keep trucking forward and like put your head down and go. It's like, it sounds like you kind of a similar path, like kind of get through that. Yeah, I think that's what I've always done is like quitting is never an option. You're just going to keep trucking forward, but that doesn't mean you're not struggling with being like, holy crap, what am I getting myself into? Yeah. So it's a tricky program. It's an interesting world going into the flying piece. And then when you jump into the, like the fighter side of the house, there's wasn't super easy for me. There's definitely a lot of like debriefs that were relatively painful. Um, yeah, but, but it's just kind of those things that I just, you know, put the head down, try to like learn from that and like make make myself better for, for the next round. But you jumped right to the Viper out of pilot training. Yeah. How was that? Uh, that was also quite the leap for sure. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, which funny that you were, I didn't even know you were a FAPE. Yeah. But on my, on my drop night, I was convinced I was going to become a T6 FAPE. That's yeah. what was going to happen. And all of my IPs knew, knew that, so they messed with me. <laughs> so of 25 people in the class, I got to find out last. That's, that's awesome. And they did like this Google Earth thing where we're at Columbus and someone made this fancy program where it would like zoom out, circle around, and then it would zoom into the base you were going to. And so mine, it zooms out from Columbus, circles around, starts to zoom back into Columbus, and then it hops over to Luke in Phoenix, which <laughs> that's is awesome. F-16 training. And I was up there just like holding my mug of beer, about to lose it. Um, yeah, so that was funny. But I went off to Luke for F-16s and the flying of the jet wasn't that hard of an adjustment. Yeah. It was the tactics that we started to learn. And that was a lot. And again, I'm like, man, I should have been an engineering major or something that would have prepared me a little bit better for this. But criminal justice does not set you up to understand frequencies and like fuse delays and all that stuff. I was just like, what is happening? Not coming from an engineering background. I'm not very smart. Same. So like they're like people are like very smart flying these fast yes. planes and they just like get it. I had to work I think pretty hard to like figure this stuff out. And there's yep. so much to know. Like that's yep. like management. So big picture too, like this kind of ties into a little bit what you're doing now, because you've taken a slightly different career path outside the Air Force, and we're gonna get to that. But managing these like big problems or very detailed oriented problems that are challenging. How do you kind of go through, how do you manage that? You, Grenade. Yeah, it's it's so easy to get overwhelmed. Yeah. And then as you start to get overwhelmed, you get that like snowball effect and like hopeless feeling. The same thing that can happen on a flight. You know, yeah, a absolutely. check ride, one little thing goes wrong and then you're stressed about that and it just piles up. So 
I was not that good at managing it at first, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I flailed around a lot, and if I knew some of the stuff I knew now and went back and did it again, I would have definitely asked for more help. Yeah. Because I felt like I needed to prove something, I Absolutely. think. Absolutely. And especially almost always being the only woman in the group, that made that pressure a little bit greater yeah. under a microscope. So I felt like I had to be the one that knew all the things and I couldn't ask for help. And so knowing now that actually having the humility to be like, hey, can you spend some extra time explaining that to me? People actually look at that as a strength, not a weakness. 100%. But my perspective on that was skewed at that point. Mine was too, and I think that's really, I didn't really think about that, but asking for help. So when I was going through pit, we had a C model guy going through pit and you know, he was the only fighter guy, you know, in my mind, this guy was up on a pedestal, knew everything, super smart. He's got a PhD now, like he's that type of guy, but he was not afraid to like ask questions in class. Like I would sit there, shut up. If I didn't know something, like maybe I'd ask a bro like later on, or I would try, you know, it was going to be in private. But without fail, he might ask like 15 questions and it'd be like the simple question. It was the exact thing I was wondering about, had no fear doing it. And to me, I took away, and that's something I carry today is like, I think it is a strength. Like one, there's a little humility in there that you don't know everything and it doesn't matter what job you're in, but being willing to ask questions and lean on people who have more experience than you that maybe they work for you, maybe you work for them. Like that's, that's a tough thing for people to overcome, I think. Yeah, because I, I saw it as showing weakness and like yeah. that was going to be looked upon as, as a fault. And a lot of it was me not understanding fighter pilot culture Yeah, and being new to what, you know, coming in without a lot of perspective, I felt like was all like super type A, like very, very confident. And I, I was a super shy kid. I'm an introvert. Like yeah. I'm just not. I don't usually speak up in like group settings and so I was trying to fit into this new culture that I just didn't get yet and all of that led to me not asking for help when I should have and so I just struggled along behind the scenes and it worked out obviously but it was painful. Yeah there's definitely uh, but those moments I think make you stronger right like now that's that is something that you care with like how you execute on a daily daily basis but I always say like there are those that have them, those that will, like I think it applies to everything. So you might, maybe you understand concept A and I don't, but I understand B and you don't. Yeah. Like not being afraid to like ask questions and lean on people because I think we make make each other stronger. That is not an easy thing nope. just to overcome. Nope. You, sure. you hit on this, which for those watching and listening, this is probably an obvious thing, but uh, you're female. Female fighter pilots are, I would say not rare, but percentage-wise is relatively low, obviously, compared to males. What were some of the challenges you faced, like, probably just being typically the only woman in in a group of 15 or whatever it might be? Like, it had to be, it had to present a few challenges, I imagine. Yeah, so I think the number is somewhere around 3% of Air Force fighter pilots are women. Yeah, relatively low. Yeah, (laughs) I think we all know each other because it's so low, which is cool because it's almost like this super close-knit group that automatically forms and there's always people you can reach out to for stuff, but you will usually find yourself as the only one or maybe one of two in a squadron. And it became less of a challenge as I got older and more confident and more comfortable uh, in my skills as a pilot and in just the dynamics in the squadron. But when I was brand new, I know that IFF, you know, the first exposure to fighter culture kind of, which I think at least the program I went through, the instructors weren't just exposing you to tactics for the first time. They also wanted to give you this shock of what fighter pilot culture should be. Right. And I was coming through in 2011. So it was a really pivotal point for culture yeah. in the fighter squadrons. Yeah, big. Yeah, you were moving away from kind of what you imagined from Vietnam, where it was a little more rough around the edges to more what you see now. And so there was some resistance to that shift. Maybe a little bit. Yes. If I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> so being a woman in a squadron when that was happening, um, I think there were some people that were frustrated with it. And that's a whole, you yeah. do a whole episode on just that. Yep. But IFF specifically, my flight commander, we did our first roll call. My flight commander pulls me aside beforehand and gives me like this pre-brief on all these st- things that are going to happen. 
And some of the stuff he said was completely insane to me now. He's like, there could be pornography on the screens. There could be this happening. This is what we're going to do, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, if you, if that makes you uncomfortable, you can leave. But was it so that's you what, specifically like yep, pulled aside and all like, by yeah. myself yeah. in the dude's flight, flight commander's office. That moment sticks out to me. It was like burned into my memory because yeah. I was like, this is what I just stepped into because I didn't really know what to expect. Right. And honestly, the stuff he talked about ended up not being, a, not happening or not being a big deal. But I remember being so uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm a brand new lieutenant and this is a major and yeah. I'm just like, what am I getting myself into? So that sticks with me. Um, once I got off to my first combat squadron, Masala, uh, I had uh, Smokin' Sharon was another uh, woman. And she was also in my B course class. So we okay. knew each other and were good friends. And that was just so amazing to have another person. But it was, it was stuff that seems insignificant, like not having flight suits with extended zippers so you can use yeah. a pedal pack in the right. jet. Or I'm still, Josh. Yeah, we can do an episode on that as well. Uh, it's quite the process. Or just not having flight gear that fits you, or going somewhere and there's only a male bathroom, yeah. and they just like don't have a women's bathroom because there are no women in that squadron, even though there are. Right. Just little stuff like that seems insignificant, but it just grinds on you over time. Yeah. And then another thing I always noticed, and this happened my entire career, is being either on a group email or in a briefing or like in an assembly of the whole squadron. So there's 50 of us in there. And whoever's on the stage being like, all right, gents, all right, all right, gentlemen, dudes, men. And like, they don't mean anything right. bad by it. But every time I was very aware that I was different from everyone else. Yeah. And sometimes they would be aware that they did that after they said it. So then they'd be like, uh, and Mace. And Mace, yeah. And so then I'm like, okay, I don't know if I'd rather just have you group me with everyone else or call me out. I'd probably just have rather be called a gent or a dude. Yeah. But, uh, Again, insignificant by itself, but when, you know, 10 years of that all the time, you're like, I'm not like everyone else. Yeah. So. Which I think, one, uh, we can talk more about this, too, because I think it is interesting. The one thing I found out in, you know, the squadron, the so diversity-wise, maybe not, uh, you know, race, sex, like, those squad, like, squadrons are not very diverse. Yeah. But from uh, background-wise, I did find that, they're like very unique individuals. So like, they're not from Georgia like me. They're from, you know, some small town in New Mexico and they grew up in a camper and like, you know, they don't wear shoes. They just walk barefoot around, like very different than me. Yeah. But like, there are those, like that kind of diversity of thought and people like, again, it's not the most diverse organization, right? So asterisk there, but I did find that I have some friends who are like, if we'd met outside of the military, like we probably not have yep. hung out because it, we just come from such polar opposite places. For sure. But um, yeah, it, it is interesting, I, I, you know, the piddle pack thing. This thing, when I was deployed, this is too much sharing, right? But like you would burn through like four or five piddle oh, yeah. packs in like an eight hour sortie. Yep. Like that's normal, like you're hydrated. So Tally Haworth, a good friend of mine, only female fighter pilot in our squadron were deployed. I, she would have to dehydrate herself. So you're, you know, you're doing a seven hour sortie, but you're getting in the jet an hour early and you're probably sitting in the jet for 45 minutes after you land. So it's a really long time span. And just from a physiological standpoint, not a good thing to dehydrate yourself, period. Definitely not a good thing to dehydrate yourself flying an F-16. But that was her tactic because there was like no other, there's no other good alternative uh, getting around that. And that's like impeding your ability to go out there and perform. So it sounds like the Air Force is trying to work around that it's a it's a problem they are and there was a lot of frustrations when the extended zipper flight suits came on the market like they are now made they're produced yeah. just like the male versions are but they're super difficult to get and so when i was about to deploy to afghanistan i went to my afe shop so life support that has all our equipment and i was like i have to have extended zipper flight suits i need to be able to go to the bathroom on these like six plus hour yeah. flights and they were like couple weeks went by and they're like ma'am we went to supply we called all over the air force and we were told there's not enough demand so they don't carry them i was like i don't care if there's two of us like you realize how much money you've spent to train us and what you're asking us to do you can't make a flight suit with a zipper this much longer right so i was not happy um there's been a huge push to fix that and i think it's getting better but my guys in that shop 
got male flight suits in the right size, went into town, found a seamstress that would sew extended zippers in, wow. and they gave me like six of them. That's huge. Yeah, so they were amazing. But it was very, I was very frustrated with the process at that point. I'm like, you're sending me to combat and I can't get a zipper that's long enough? Like, I was, how dumb is this? Um, but yeah, the dehydration thing, I know a lot of people did that. I cannot imagine flying a I, combat sortie or even a long cross country without drinking enough yeah. water where I'd have to go to the bathroom. I think like my standard like combat loadout, like going to the jet was yeah. probably like, I had a big thermos, like where I'd like get cold water in and then I would carry probably four bottles of water and then a bunch of snacks and oh, stuff yeah. like that. Like you have, I, I have to have that Same. like to stay. Otherwise I just, when yeah. worst night in my life in combat was when uh, my flight lead broke when we were in Iraq and he air spared out. So he went back home. I stayed in Iraq, but I burned through all my snacks in like the first 45 minutes. And I was like, this is a terrible night. This is going to be it's a really, it's, it's going to be a really long night after this point. So it's those simple things, but it, you know, it is amazing that the amount of money we spend on certain things, like again, if there's 30 female fighter pilots, obviously the demand is not going to be huge compared right. to regular flight suits, but we spend a lot of money on a lot of things, a lot of things. Yeah, so. yeah for sure. So the, the, there's been so many initiative over the last few years though, to fix that yep. with everything from combat vests and G suits to flight suits and different options of how to go to the right. bathroom and the air force is really working hard to fix that. So it's good to see, but it was uh, a lot of trial and error yeah. of piddle yeah, packs yeah. and I, this is a funny story. So when I was on the team, I showed up, I got fit for my first very tight blue suit. Those things are tight. Very, very, very tight. And I got it. And of course it needed adjusting, but it had a normal zipper in it. And I was like, this is not going to work. And so we talked to the people that made it, they put an extended zipper in, and then they made that the standard for all women on the team, even nice. support officers, because they'll fly in the backseat sometimes. Yeah. So that, that got fixed. But that suit is just not, there's not a lot of room for moving things around because it's so fitted. And so I got very good at going to the bathroom, just a regular piddle pack on cross countries because cross country yeah. twice a week, every week. But it was not, I was 100% successful. And <laughs> I know guys have experienced this too yeah, because yeah, they've told, I've, they've, we've shared war stories. Yeah. And we talked about it on the radio on cross countries. Yeah. It was just funny. It was entertaining. We were like going to the bathroom and you can't see what's going on. Yeah. And then you're like all done and you hold up your piddle pack and you're like, that amount does not equal how long I just went to the bathroom Yeah, it's just for. not compute. Yeah, and so you'll dry out eventually, <laughs> but I'm like sitting in this, you know, $30 million airplane. I'm 30 something years old and I'm the lead solo for the Thunderbirds. And I'm like, I have pee pants. Yeah. <laughs> and then you land and I get out of the airplane and I have to do an on-camera interview. And so now I'm on like local news channel, which could be for like New York City or something. A lot of people are gonna see right. it, and I'm just like talking about the air show in the back of my head. I'm like, I have pee pants. People don't realize, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like the simple stuff, and you're like, ah, oh, think it's like, oh, it's a fighter pilot, like all locked in. It's like, still so glamorous. Still have, have to go to the bathroom, <laughs> and you know, when you're in a 30 degree reclined seat, yes. Uh, it, it, a, I never wore the blue flight suit. That thing looks again super tight, yes. but there's not a lot of room in that 16 to begin with. Nope. Like, just manage it. Yeah, there's some horror stories out there that, oh, yeah. you know. <laughs> Probably not for the podcast, but you could do a whole comedy episode on just bathroom mishaps in the jet. I, uh, I've heard like just yeah yep. some like heinous ones from like generals and things like that from them back in the days. And you're like, hasn't changed much. You no, know, it's funny how comfortable you get with it though, with among each other because at first it's like so embarrassing, yeah. but then you're like, well, this is just life. Like this is just normal human function, and this is what we do for a living. I imagine it's kind of like that with like astronauts and stuff in space and all the weird stuff. Like, well, here we are. Yeah, you're close. <laughs> Your transition, so you're Masawa, right? How is, actually, how is Masawa? Like, I fly over that now, and it looks really cold yep. from 35,000 feet. Yeah, so Masawa is an interesting assignment for me. Uh, it's beautiful. Northern yeah. Japan is gorgeous. The mission is really cool. Seed squadron. Um, that was my first combat squadron, and I... Definitely the stuff we talked about earlier of like feeling like I had to prove myself and fit into this culture and that really took hold of me there and I struggled through that assignment. Not that I wasn't doing fine flying, right? but like in my own mind, I was in over my head and I didn't belong there. I think, I mean, for those listening too, like you, like you don't want to go against the grain in a fighter squadron. Like um, if you're the yeah, one nail sticking with the wrong direction, like you're going to get swacked. So that, I mean, that is a big part of the culture because you're a team 
you know, working towards the same objective. Like that's that's the push. And if yeah. you're going to be the one who's going to against the grain, like I imagine. So yeah, I didn't. I think that's important to highlight for just sure. for those who don't quite understand the culture. It's not like you just do your own thing and it's going to work out well for you. Yeah. Like it might, but probably not, right? And it, I always like it's kind of weird to talk about because. I had such great friends in that squadron in that assignment, yeah. and we were really good at what we did. That was such a high-performing squadron that I was part of. Um, but just me being where I was in my career, first lieutenant, brand new to the jet, just the seed mission, even piling yeah. on more yeah. technical stuff, I was just like, I feel like I'm going through med school right now. This yeah. is just so much stuff. Um, and then, again, being you know one of two women in that squadron, and you show up, you're not Nate, you don't have a call sign yet. You There is, I think pressure to prove yourself yeah, 100%. in the community and find, I felt like I had to establish this reputation yeah. in this community I was going to be a part of for a long time. And cause I knew that it would follow you from base to base and I was going to get named and all of this stuff. And so I struggled with that a little bit, feeling like I had to pretend to be this person I wasn't. And that got better with time and experience and maturity, but I struggled at Misawa, and again, I think I did fine flying. I became a flight lead, and there were no big way issues. To, way your way to the Thunderbirds. So I eventually, so you, yeah, yeah, so, Thunderbirds, so you probably did, you probably but, did okay. But man, in my head, I was like, "How am I going to do this for ten years?" Because you have ten-year commitment. I'm like, you know, maybe a year into it at that point, or two years into it. Did you just kind of bear down and just like, yeah, yep. just suck it up and? I did, but on it, looking back at it now, I think I also went through a divorce while I was there. Okay. So the combination of all of that, I think I should have reached out to help for help to someone. Like we talk about mental health stuff. Yeah. I think I should have reached out to like a professional or my flight commander or someone. And I had friends that were supportive, but the ops tempo is so busy there and they have their own lives going on. And so you're, you're kind of just by yourself a lot. And Misawa, everyone lives on base or most people live on base. I lived in a quadplex building. Everyone in that building were other pilots in my squadron. So just going through something so like personal in your life, you're in a fishbowl. Yeah. And so you feel like everyone knows what's going on. Everyone's watching it happen. The squadron commander I had at the time was not very good with emotional intelligence and <laughs> handling it. He's a super smart guy. Yeah. Patch, great pilot. But he was like, oh, boy, I don't, like, yeah. just fix your shit so you can be a functioning member of the squadron. That was about the support I got. So it was a lot. And I can see, like, especially being, you know, new to the squadron, and then you're obviously dealing with a lot of life stuff, but then, like, being that close to work and something that's very difficult personally, um, you're trying not to, like, let that bleed over, but then everyone, like, kind of knows is, like, well, yeah, she's yeah got all this going on. I can't imagine having to deal with all that. For sure. And people didn't really know what to do. They'd be like, uh, sorry. And they're like, so you ready to brief? Right, yeah, I wouldn't, I mean, honestly, I wouldn't, yeah. know, like, facing that, because you're like, you know. You want to cry. What do you say, and, like, yeah. what do you do, and you know it's, you know it's not good, but, yeah, that's yeah. a, that, that'd be a tough situation to go through. Yeah, so, I, again, that squadron was so good at the mission, and it's such a beautiful place to live, and there's a lot of cool cultural stuff there, and so many people love that assignment. Personally, I struggled through it, but that three years also taught me more than like any time in my career field or like and, in my career. And, yeah, in what way? Just, I had never, so I, you know, had those little moments of doubt and struggling with IFS and just going to IFF and the culture and stuff, but none of it felt like something I couldn't overcome. Yeah. But Masala, that stuff all just piled up at once and I, it was, I was just slogging through. Like, I didn't have another choice. Right. So I would drive to work and sit in my car and not want to go in the squadron. And then I would go home and I would just go to bed at like 7 p.m. Because like you're yeah. just existing. So it, it was not fun. And the catalyst to fix that was really PCSing to my next assignment. Okay. And then also some time like separation from all this stuff um, in my personal life. But my last eight, nine months in Masao, I also got picked up as a safety observer for PACF demo. Okay. And that got me out of Masawa. I got to go TDY with Code Brown. I don't know if you know yep. him, but great dude. But that whole demo team, the maintenance and everything is just tightening it. Really good people. I got to go to Malaysia, different places in Japan. And cool. that was like a breath of fresh air. Just just something new outside of that environment. Yeah, pulling yourself yep. away and separating yourself. And that, again, I think that translates to a lot of things in life. Sure. You know, when you're down in the weeds and in the trenches, 
like you can't have that 30,000 foot view of like the bigger picture and yep. getting that like bigger picture I think helps again in a lot of different ways depending on what you're dealing with yeah. so you cannot read the label from the inside of the jar yeah, that's, <laughs> there, there you go I'm gonna steal that one yeah you're yeah. just stuck in there yeah 100% so yeah, but PCSing to my next assignment which was a TFI so blended with a reserve squadron at Fort Worth that was an incredible assignment and I grew as a person over those three years like night and day I think we actually met there when I did the Alliance show Oh, yeah. We went to dinner. We That's, went to dinner. Yeah, 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 so. Yeah, I do remember we that. We lied in the opening. Sorry. So, yeah, here we go. The, yes, ra the uh, random, random thought. Um, what's it called? The Stockyards. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. remember that. That's a good, uh, so the, the TFI gig, at, again, you know, active duty mixed with guard. Like, to me, that looked like an amazing deal. I knew yes. as, like, a senior captain, 04, like, if I hadn't done demo, like, low pk that they would send me there because a lot of people go there and like it's a very easy transition out of active duty into the guard or reserve but uh can you talk like yeah kind of how that assignment was yeah so coming off of my time in Masao and just all the things that had happened there finding out i was going to a tfi squadron because the ops tempo was so high at Masao, 12 yeah. to 15 hour days i was just the epitome of burned out like yeah, as burned out as you can get the day my squadron commander came in and was like, I found out your assignment, and he's like, I'm really excited for you. He's like, you're going TFI to Fort Worth. It was like someone just threw me a lifeline. Jackpot, yeah. I was like, okay, this is a, this is a reset. I can, I can get back on top of all this stuff. Um, and it was intimidating going there for a couple of reasons. Very experienced squadron. Yeah. There's a ton of patches in that squadron, something like 12 of them. It's like all, all, yeah, they're like yeah, all weapons yeah, school yeah. graduates. They had never had a woman fly in the squadron in the entire history. Never, never not one. Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and reserves, they pick and choose who they yeah. hire. Not that they wouldn't hire a woman, but they choose people more than even flying skill. They choose personalities because people in the reserves or the guard stay there for a long time. So they're building their family, their tribe. Yeah. And again, like I said, a lot of weapons officers, uh, Clancy Morkel, now I forget her last name, she's married, but like she was one of my students going through. Yep. She was the first female to go through F-16 weapons school in the history of F-16 yeah. weapons school, which is like 2015 or 2014 she went yeah, through. Not like, long yeah, so there's not long ago. Yeah, there's not many female patches roaming around the Viper, it's true. let alone female fighter pilots. So yeah, the pool's small. Yeah, so I was a little, a little worried as I was showing up there yeah. because I knew they hadn't by choice hired any women to fly for them. And now since they have this small contingent of active duty, there are six to eight of us at any given point, six to nine of us at any given point. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I was being kind of forced upon them. So I was like, ooh, how's this gonna go? They were amazing. So, <clears throat> excuse me, so humble. And they could have been super arrogant just based on their experience level and their skill set, but they didn't have anything to prove. Right. And because they had kind of like picked this group of people, there were no, black sheep in the squadron there were there were no assholes in the squadron yeah, yeah. and there was like there was zero people where I would see my name on the schedule with them and be like oh, no that's huge and that's there's almost always a few of those in there's, every squadron and if you don't know like you're that person right like there's always that guy <laughs> yeah. you know so you're like uh and then you're like wait maybe it's me maybe but, it was me yeah <laughs> that's all like but again like the guards and the reserves are different because they, like, they do like when they hire someone they're doing it because for the next 20 years, this person is going to be in the unit. And if yeah. you hire a dud, like you're owning it and paying for it for decades, potentially. So yeah, they do sure. a very good job of screening. There's some units that have had some bad apples. And again, it's taken generations to kind of get out. So, yeah. And one bad personality can change the entire squadron. 100%. It's I mean, incredible. the reason I got out was really because of one one commander and it wasn't just me i think you probably can attribute four or five patches getting out of the air force because of him then you're probably going to attribute you know another like 12 and it's like it's it literally one bad person and then the reason is you're know, like well he's going to keep moving on you're going to keep moving up the problems are only going to get bigger and more complex and maybe you get along with the bad apple but like ultimately like he has say over where I go, where, what, and really for me, it's like, I can deal with a lot of stuff, but as you drag your family to potentially a really bad deal because something didn't go well at work yeah. and you're being punished, like the ramifications are, are very different. So it is one bad person can be so, it's a cancer. Yep. You got to cut the cancer out and, yep. and get rid of them. It's hard to do. 
the Air Force is struggling, and they're, I mean, obviously they're phenomenal people in the Air Force, but this is a conversation that comes up quite routinely. Like, unfortunately, I was talking to Wing Commander last night, I think like the best thing the Air Force did was get rid of like the below the zone and like school selects to like major, because not to go too far down the road, you would pick your show pony, as I call them, very young. Yep. And just because you're great at flying the jet tactically doesn't mean you're necessarily a great leader. For sure. There are obviously guys and gals that do both very well, but sometimes you pick the guy who does very well tactically and just moves up the food chain. And it's like, that is not the person yep. that you need to be in command. And unfortunately, they can do they can do a lot of damage on the way. The, yes. the you know, the gorilla in the china shop just smashing yeah. and breaking things and leaving a wake of destruction. For sure. Yeah, it's a retention problem. Yeah, 100%. Sure. Pushes people out. So that kind of jumps to the retention piece. Thunderbirds yeah. doing a lot of air shows, flyovers, go out there, engage in the community, hopefully like recruit, you know, inspiring the next generation to fly. How was your experience on the team? So the Thunderbirds is such a unique assignment and you probably experienced some in Viper demo, the coolest parts of my career and the best people I worked with and also some of the hardest parts of my career. Really? Uh, the schedule is very difficult and you're in a little bit of a pressure cooker. So on average, the team's got about 240 days a year. That's a lot. Through, for three years. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so that is hard. That's the hardest part is you're gone from your family. You, every weekend is an air show, which you could be at the coolest air show ever, but you miss a lot of things. When you're gone Thursday to Monday from March to November, you're going to miss kids' baseball games. You're going to miss graduations and weddings and just all kinds of things. Fourth yeah. of July weekends, like everything. So I realize that's, it's hard to complain about that because people see the shiny side. Absolutely. And they're like, well, you're doing the coolest job on the planet. Well, how can you complain? But it's, you're still human. You still have families. Like I met my husband when I first moved to Vegas. And so we got married just a couple of months into my first show season. And so our whole first three years of marriage, I was gone 240 days a year. So that, that's hard, no matter how yeah. fun the job is. So you have that side. And then the fatigue of constantly hopping time zones every week, going cross country twice a week. But then you have just, the flying was by far the most fun flying yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Sure. Like flying upside down over the Pacific Ocean at 100 feet, and like, when you when I got proficient, I would be more aware of what else was going on besides just staring at my HUD. Yeah. And I would see like a boat over there, and I'd be like, "Oh, look, pelicans!" And I'd be like, "All the, oh, there goes the show center boat!" And it's just such a surreal, yeah, surreal setting. I remember the first couple shows going from learning this routine and practicing over the desert, over the range, which is just brown dirt. Yeah. And so there's not a lot of things to distract you. To rolling in and taking the line, and there's like cows and cars and power lines yeah. and i'm just like holy crap there's so much going on but as you get more comfortable in it again you you realize how cool it is uh, the stuff that you're doing and then the formation stuff i like a lot of fighter pilots who have not done it probably underestimated the difficulty yeah and we're like oh loops to music how hard could it be flying the loop and the roll when you're not on the source and you're the outrigger is the hardest stuff I did in the whole demo. I believe it. Yeah, the roll. I, yeah. I, so <laughs> you always joke like coming up initial or whatever, like, you know, number four is on the end of the whip there, oh, yeah. but like you're doing loops and yeah. rolling, like you're really on the end of the whip, yeah. especially as like the solo, like yeah. when you're hopping into the, the diamond, the whole six ship there, like yeah. I, how long was that upgrade process? Like get like, hey, certified by Comac, you're ready to go. Getting proficient and comfortable is like a whole nother story, yeah. but. Yeah, so showed up in October, started really flying in November as the last team was wrapping up show season. And then Comex Cert was, I think, in like early March. Okay. So you have a handful of months there. I flew well over 100 upgrade sorties in that amount of time. Yeah, I, like, I was crushing my hour count for any right. other year. Right. Uh, we would fly, sometimes we would double turn every day, Monday through Friday. And especially, you kind of, I worked on my stuff with the lead solo at the time and just doing repetitions of single ship maneuvers, eight points, four points, inverted stuff, all that. And then the diamonds working on like all their diamond specific stuff. And then we come together as the Delta, you start to sequence the show together. 
you work on flying formation as a delta, which you could do a whole flight of just working on that over and over because yeah. it takes so many repetitions. And then as you get to the point where you're like, okay, we can go through an entire show sequence, now it's like full throttle because everyone is flying together. It's the same six pilots, every sortie. The schedule is mirrored just over and over all week long. And that gets exhausting. Yeah. I, that's <laughs> I, that's soul crushing hearing like that, just yes. how, how busy that is. We always said that our family is like training season because we were home at night. But for the pilots in the demo, training season was harder than show season because you're not getting the reward of getting all these cool opportunities and the feedback of the crowd and all of that. Right. It's just the grind. Let's go fly, debrief in detail. Again and again. Go do it again and again and again. Yeah, yeah that, that'd be so crushing. But I mean, it's a pretty good deal. Again, yeah. it's like the shine, like, to me, like doing demo was by far like the best assignment. Yep. Um, I don't think, I was probably 220 days a year is like probably what my count was, but I had more autonomy. Like it was just like me and like 12 maintainers. So like we had a little bit more flexibility. Having such a big team, I'd imagine that presented some challenges as far as like, it's like everyone is doing this or yes. no one is doing this. Yeah, there was, there's a lot of, it's not like us, we as a team did not choose what we did, right? That's yeah. coming from Air Force level. That came from White House level at points yeah. for like flyover requests yeah. for 4th of July and that kind yeah. of thing. And it's like, okay, this is what we're doing. Um, and the logistics of the demands on the team with everyone who wants to put them in specific spots, that trickles down to the operators in the actual cockpits and yeah. trying to move a team of, we would take about 70 people on the road, okay. trying to take 70 people in a C-17 across the country and getting tanker support and taking eight F-16s. And it was just a big lift. We were extremely good at it because we did it all the time but there would still be issues maintenance issues jets break right. places c-17s fall out tankers fall out and so it, it was uh, a lot but i started off the 2019 season so my first couple events ever for the public first one super bowl giddy up yep second one daytona 500 nice third one red carpet premiere of captain marvel in hollywood and then we got to go to the to the premiere and watch it with that's, like the cast and the after party. I, I do remember that too because I remember Cajun's parents. I think you guys did a flyover yes. of like their yep. neighborhood yep. stuff, which was really cool to see that see cool. that happen. So yeah, so yeah, it was like off to the races, like ripping the bandaid off, like <laughs> yeah. time to go do it. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever, and everyone who had been on the team for a year was like, guys, like your expectations are now very skewed because there'll be months later where we're hitting small town after small town right. middle of nowhere air show like over and over and over and there's none of the like they're just very standard air shows with right. no experiences like you just experienced so like temper your expectations a little the, bit the bar just got, <laughs> the like bar was right, set right, very right high. out the gate well i know you got a lot of other stuff going on so i want to start kind of wrapping up but i wanted before we do that um kind of transition to like what are you doing now because you've like taken a slightly different path yep. than most leaving active duty so can you kind of tell me a little bit like what you're doing now and then also like where people can find you and things like that yeah for sure so i'll give you a quick backstory i was on my second year with the thunderbirds and i, I kind of decided i was going to leave active duty just for family stability and that kind of thing and i was looking at the airlines as yeah, most standard. most of us do and i was like okay that i could go fly for southwest we could be based in vegas like this all makes sense and then the pandemic happened and Quite a few things happened. The airline industry was very uncertain for a while. And then we got asked to stay for a third year on the Thunderbirds. So my whole timeline of leaving activity got pushed a year later. So actually a blessing in disguise. It was a shock at the time because you're you're like kind of have this timeline in your head and all of a sudden right. it's like whoop. But as everyone was experiencing in the middle of pandemic. So I started exploring options outside of going to the airlines and kind of rethinking things. And I realized that I would not be super fulfilled doing that yep. as much as it can create a great lifestyle for you. And I had been on social media, I had been sharing these videos and kind of growing this following for like no monetization or anything, right. but just because it was fun to share yeah. with people. And so people were getting more aware of what I was doing. I got to be on the Kelly Clarkson show, which uh, yeah. that's so strange, <laughs> but really cool. Um, it's like people would reach out and be like, hey, can you speak at this event? And I'm like, well, A, our schedule is soul crushing. I don't have the time and B, I, I can't do that stuff while I'm active duty. And so I kind of just filed that away. And I had a couple people that I met along the way that were in that industry that were like, hey, if you wanted to do public speaking, 
like you have a great story, a great message. You can really inspire people. Yeah. And when I thought about my time on the team, I really realized that I loved that part of the job. Yeah. Like being able to have these interactions with a lot of like younger girls, like high school or early twenties and just a few words, I could just see how big of an impact that made on them. And then everyone as well, men as well. And it was so fulfilling. That was like the coolest part of being a demo pilot. And so I started thinking about how I could continue to do that. And so definitely took the path less travel. <laughs> I left active duty. I'm still a reservist doing Air Force recruiting, yeah, which is kind of a natural transition. Right. I'm going to go do that here in a few minutes. Yep, yep. Um, but then I started Upside Down Dreams, which is my own company, doing a keynote speaking, some leadership consulting stuff, working on a book, which is a whole yeah, talk about outside my comfort yeah. zone. Yeah. I'm like, what is going on? Um, yeah, so I go around and share a lot of the stuff we talked about today, just feeling like an imposter, like I was in over my head, all that self-doubt that I struggled with. It's just such a contrast to share those very vulnerable stories. And then they see these videos of me as the lead solo. Yeah. And they're like, how is this the same person? And I really just want to show people that the things that they're struggling with, everyone struggles with. Yeah. And that I'm not on a pedestal with a halo. And that once you give them a peek behind the curtain, it, all of a sudden people have some perspective on their struggles and it makes them realize what they can actually go do. And it's just so cool, because I can see on their faces as I'm giving my speeches, the impact that it's having, and it's so, so rewarding. It's very cool to hear, right? Like, I mean, you put your pants on the same way like everyone else, you know? Like it's, everyone struggles, everyone goes through challenging times, but again, when you see what you've accomplished and then realize like, oh, like human being with yep. the same type of struggles, and for me, like that kind of stuff helps relate, like hearing those type stories, because we all go through that. So it's really cool you're out there sharing that. All right, we'll wrap up with this. I always ask someone, all right, if you found 15, 16, 17 year old Mace walking down the street, is there any advice you would give her, tell her to do something different, something along those lines? So I don't know that I would tell her to do something different, but I would probably try to emphasize the stuff we just talked about. Like, hey, you're going to think that you're not good enough and you're going to, hit rough patches but everyone around you also is doing that so don't be afraid to share with them and reach out to them because when you are vulnerable with people with that kind of stuff you create like these amazing deep relationships with them and all of a sudden you have this support network that you would have never gotten if you keep it to yeah. yourself awesome thanks yeah. i really appreciate it thanks Absolutely. for coming on the podcast it's for fun sure. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Mace. It was fun recording with her up at oshkosh got a few more episodes that were recorded up there they'll be released in the next few weeks as always, thanks for my Patreon supporters for supporting the podcast. Thanks for all those who dropped over to iTunes and Spotify, YouTube, left a comment, left a rating or review, hit the like button. All those things help the algorithm show this podcast to more people. You can swing over to theafterburnpodcast.com for some swag and links to Patreon. As always, thanks for supporting the podcast. Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.